Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to the first of a four-part series of podcasts from Morrison Forrester discussing the legal impacts of the coronavirus. I'm Michael Ward, a partner at Mo- MoFo and head of the firm's patent group and our life sciences group. I'm joined today by four of my colleagues, Jim Mullen, a fellow patent attorney, Bethany Hills, the head of our FDA group, Matt Carlin from our commercial transactions practice, and Kristen Matthews from our privacy group. Today, we will be focusing on the development of coronavirus testing, the regulatory and technology issues associated with those developments, and privacy concerns that companies must deal with when testing employees. Jim, I'd like to start with you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks, Mike. I'm a patent attorney in the San Diego office of Morrison Enforcer, and I've been practicing for a little over two decades now. Uh, my practice is primarily in the immunology space. Before I came to the law, I was a biochemist and molecular biologist, and I have an abiding interest in virology and all things viruses, and that's part of the reason why I'm here today. So what exactly, Jim, is this virus, and why does it spread so quickly? So as a virus geek, I can say it's a very interesting virus. It's a um, very large virus. It's a a positive-stranded virus. RNA virus, and it has one of the biggest genomes of this type of virus. It primarily infects animals, but over the recent history that we've seen, we're starting to see more coronaviruses infecting people. The name coronavirus, I think, is interesting. If you can imagine a solar eclipse when the moon moves across the face of the sun, the corona of the sun is visible and you can see bits of that corona around the moon. When folks were imaging the the coronavirus particles, they saw these uh, protuberances from the ring of the virus and it looked to them like the sun. And so that's how the virus got its name. Those protuberances are thought to be the spike protein, the protein that lets the virus, once it gets into your body, will bind to the receptor. Uh, and this is generally through the nasal passages, for example, and begin the infection. That infection will typically spread to the lungs and cause uh, a lot of severe structural damage. And you're starting to hear reports uh, about virus infecting other organs like the heart and the central nervous system. So it's really super early days about the biology of the virus, but it's a tough one. And uh, it's part of the reason why it was designated a, a pandemic so early on was the severity of the infection and the speed with which it was transmitted. That speed is probably a result of the fact that this is a novel virus, a virus that humans, for the most part, haven't encountered in the past. So we really don't have a built-up immunity to it. This is a a virus of first impression for us, and um, that is, we're really quite vulnerable to it. So Jim, in the beginning, 
when this coronavirus first showed up, we, we heard a lot of speculation that this was just like the flu. How is it similar and how is it different? And what do we know and what don't we know at this point in time? Uh, I'll start with what we know because that's a much shorter list. I think the the reason why people were were pointing to influenza virus, the causative agent for the flu, is because of the respiratory impacts that SARS-CoV-2 virus has on a person who's been infected. So SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And again, once this virus infects, it attacks the lungs and it has a lot of flu-like symptoms, but that's pretty much where the similarities end. You see a difference in how the virus impacts different populations. So the flu, young folks or children are generally more more negatively affected by the flu virus as opposed to the COVID-19 causative agent. So biologically, they're very different, but they're both attacking the respiratory system. And I think that's the reason why people were saying it was flu-like. What kinds of testing are available? And what do these tests tell us, Jim? There are a number of different tests available, and they'll tell you different things. So when a novel infective agent gets into your body, typically your body will mount an immune response. And part of that response will be the generation of antibodies. So if you want to find out if you've been exposed to the virus in the past, you will take an antigen test or an antibody test, either looking for pieces of the virus or looking for the antibody that the body has generated to that virus. That's a a retrospective assay that's looking at your past and seeing if you've encountered the agent. Looking to determine whether or not you have a current infection is typically going to be a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction test. And you've probably seen, Mike, the pictures of people in the drive-up testing where they have a swab and it's going up the nose. My friends call that the brain pickle because in the early tests, they were actually reaching deep into the sinus passages to try to sample the virus. Uh, Now it's more common to have a more shallow nasal swab test. But what they'll do is they'll, they'll take a swab and test for the presence of the viral nucleic acid in that sample. And if they find that viral nucleic acid, that RNA in that sample, then you've got a current infection. If you find antibodies, you probably had the infection in the past, uh, but you may or may not be contagious at that moment. There's certainly other types of tests where you'll actually sample the, the virus and sequence the virus. And that's a much more detailed, much more expensive test. And I, that, I don't think that is nearly as common as the other two. So Jim, you know, there are lots of tests that are out there, but the test waiting time really varies from, you know, city to city, state to state. What is it about the delays in certain areas? Is it the complications of the tests or there just too many tests? What's causing the delays? My impression is that it's sample handling and who is actually doing the test. If you're, and I can speak to this from firsthand knowledge, I got tested last Saturday. I got both types of tests. I got the PCR test and the blood test. 
and I went to a private lab and um, I had my PCR results in 24 hours and my antibody results in 48 hours. And recall, this is over the weekend. And that was because that particular lab could perform those tests on site. If you've got a testing center where they're just collecting the samples and then they're sending those samples off to be tested, you've got delays in sample handling, you've got delays in the running of the actual assays. So I think that's probably the most likely source of those delays. The technology is out there. It's resource allocation, in my opinion. Okay, thanks very much, Jim. So we'd now like to turn our attention to Bethany Hills. Uh, Bethany, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I'm an FDA and healthcare regulatory attorney. I have a master's in public health. Within that training, I focused on epidemiology and biostatistics. I lead the MOFO FDA and life science practice, which, as you can imagine, has been very busy since February. We handle pre- and post-market FDA-related submissions, compliance issues, and I tend to focus my practice on strategic FDA communications within innovative technologies. Usual circumstances, Bethany, diagnostic tests like the ones Jim spoke about take months to receive FDA approval. That's right. There's a requirement for demonstrating safety and efficacy during the evaluation. Sometimes a pre-market application is required or a 510K, which is a process that compares to predicate devices, of which there are none for COVID-19. So how did these get on the market so fast? So after a Department of Health and Human Services declaration of emergency, which occurred in this case in early February of 2020, FDA had the legal ability to review submissions that address the public health emergency under a process called emergency use authorization, or we always call these EUAs. They've been used in the past for Zika, MRSA, Ebola, and others. And what they do is it allows for the recognition of an immediate need for products to address biological threats. And the EUA process lowers the barrier of review and the standards to bring products to market during the declared period of the emergency. So Bethany, how fast is the process under an EUA? It can be as little as two weeks. In the beginning of the pandemic, we were able to secure an EUA for our client BGI Genomics. At this point now, into the end of the summer, this process is taking much longer. FDA has very limited resources that are stretched thin. They're juggling both ongoing non-COVID submissions and issues alongside what is best characterized as an explosion of EUA submissions for COVID-19-related issues. At this point, FDA is accepting EUAs for non-diagnostic devices, like ventilators and decontamination units, or personal protective equipment, like face masks and face shields that might exceed an umbrella EUA process, and of course, EUAs for drug treatments and vaccines, eventually. We've secured additional EUAs for diagnostic test kits, such as for our client PlexBio, 
which is based in Taiwan. And that took more like two months. The EUA process actually includes two steps. So first, there's a pre-EUA interactive review. We've taken the position with our clients that we work to supply as much information, validation, and data as possible in the pre-EUA process to enhance the chance of FDA engaging in a speedy review. But there is a risk in this approach because FDA policy and expectations are changing. So in some cases, the testing or validation may need to actually be redone to accommodate new FDA requirements. So this is one of the most challenging parts of the EUA process is that the expectations for the submissions are changing and evolving. FDA learns from each new submission, each new type of technology, and we're learning more about the virus and its transmission and about the disease COVID-19. In more standard submissions, like in a PMA or a 510K, there would usually be more established expectations, including timelines and a policy that has been more clearly articulated. And here, unfortunately, things are evolving almost daily. So the way we handle this is to monitor carefully each EUA that is granted by FDA so we understand what this evolution is looking like. We understand the new technologies and the issues that might need to be addressed. And we counsel our clients and, and test developers that it may take longer than they expect, which is, can be frustrating because everyone is looking at this as an urgent matter and focusing on the needs of the pandemic but there is a regulatory process that does have to be gone through. So Bethany, how many tests are on the market already? So actually there are a lot. There are a handful of antigen tests. There are about 20 EUAs that permit home collection. There's only a handful of point of care tests and there are over 40 serology tests. That's the test that looks for the antibodies, but is not diagnostic for COVID-19. And then, of course, there's over 200 molecular-based PCR tests that are, in fact, diagnostic. FDA has only authorized a handful of screening tests, meaning that an asymptomatic individual could be tested, and the company provided validation of that asymptomatic testing. And this is interesting because the CDC policy on testing asymptomatic people has recently changed, creating some confusion about whether those EUAs that are able to be used to test people who have not been exposed or are not experiencing symptoms. There's also a few tests that use a process called pooling. This is a fascinating test method that enables up to five samples, which is that's FDA's policy now. There may be an ability to get more samples in the future. These samples are pooled together and tested all at once. So the benefit of this is that the lab running the test literally is only running one test on the group of pooled samples rather than running five separate tests. This helps to deal with shortages in reagents and other lab supplies and makes it easier because you're only using one test kit per group of pooled sample. However, if the pooled sample comes back with a positive, then all the samples need to be retested individually, meaning that you have to run six tests total instead of five. <laughs> so the hope is that you would actually get all of the samples in the pool to come back negative. If the pooled sample does that, then all of them can be cleared as negative and you can move on. So it really is a much more efficient testing process. 
There's also a small number of tests FDA has recently been authorizing through the EUA process that we refer to as multiplex. So these are multi-analyte tests that test for SARS-CoV-2 virus, but they also test for other respiratory viruses. This is important, particularly as the 2020 flu season is approaching in the U.S., since it may be very beneficial to distinguish in a single test between SARS-CoV-2 and other common respiratory viruses such as the flu. And lastly, there are about 40 laboratories that have obtained their own individual EUAs very specific to their laboratory. And in a few cases, there are next-generation sequencing tests that have been cleared by FDA through the EUA process. These actually fully sequence the virus and use a different test method than PCR tests. However, NGS testing is still very limited, and most of the lab EUAs are for PCR test methods. So, Bethany, if they are coming on the market so quickly, is there a different standard for approval? Yeah, the standard under an EUA is would be FDA needing to make a determination that the diagnostic test may be effective. As you can tell, that's not a very definitive answer. They may be effective in diagnosing or determining the condition based on their intended use. This is very different from the standard process for approval of diagnostic products, which requires a demonstration of safety and effectiveness, or at the very least, establishing a predicate, like comparing your your product to a predicate device. When the emergency declaration is over, so will all of these emergency authorizations, and they will they will come to an end, and they will have to go through the usual process. We've learned through discussions with FDA that they are working on a formal policy to assist test developers to transition from an EUA to a standard 510K or some other acceptable market authorization for these tests. Typically, a period for the EUA does not stay open forever, but it does stay open for a fairly long time, usually a number of years. And given that the EUA standard is definitely less rigorous and more expedited than a typical market authorization, it does make sense for developers to be thinking about the future, too. So, Bethany, how have the tests changed even over the relatively short time that this has been going on? There have been a number of evolutions, as I mentioned earlier, particularly in pooling and the screening tests. These are, of course, very important options and enhancements to the testing process. Rapid testing is very desirable. Unfortunately, it's often not as accurate as a test that takes longer to process. So we are looking at technologies. I know FDA is focusing on technologies to try and identify better rapid testing options. In fact, FDA recently mentioned in their weekly town hall meeting that they are going to be prioritizing and their primary focus is point of care test options. So we think that test developers with point of care technologies will get a prioritized review compared to molecular PCR testing options. Of course, there continues to be an interest in options for home collection and maybe even home testing. But there is a pretty big jump from point-of-care testing, which happens under the direction of a healthcare provider, and there's a healthcare provider involved in delivering the results. There would also be some kind of 
lab or equipment in the point of care testing that would actually conduct the test. However, going to a completely home test that would actually provide the results at home is something that we've not heard much talk about. I think there's a great desire to do it, and FDA has not established any policy for those types of tests. We've also seen a good amount of evolution across various sample types. So the deep nasal sample, a shallow nasal sample, saliva test, all of these different types of sample types have been validated and the technologies are getting better at detecting the virus and even more narrow bands of sample type. And of course, one thing that was really interesting in May, there was a really big change. FDA had previously allowed for serology tests, those antibody tests, to be in a very relaxed process on the market. All you had to do is notify FDA that you were going to be marketing them. And they changed that policy really dramatically in May and required there to be EUAs for all the serology tests. So for sure, one thing is very clear. Testing technologies are improving and the FDA's policy is evolving to match the technology. It has been a fascinating process from the perspective of regulatory science because we've been able to see live, iterative processes moving really quickly in only the span of a few months, even though it may seem like a lifetime for some of us. Thanks very much, Bethany. Uh, I'd like to turn now to Matt. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Uh, this is Matt Carlin. I'm a partner in Morrison & Forrester's commercial life sciences and licensing practice uh, and our technology transactions practice. Uh, I've been working in the life sciences and technology space for pretty much my entire career, which is over two decades, really focused on commercial transactions coming out of technology and life sciences companies. So Matt, how have the companies you work with been responding to the pandemic? So the convergence of biology and technology has never, uh, in my view, been more critical or more apparent than it is right now. The developments and potential developments we're witnessing firsthand, because we're doing the deals for these companies, are coming at a pace I really don't think we've ever witnessed before, certainly not in the 23 years that I've been doing this. Technology and life sciences companies are adapting existing platforms and technologies in order to positively impact outcomes with respect to testing, treating, and tracking COVID-19 at a pace we've just simply never seen before. Startups and emerging growth companies, to global pharmaceutical companies, to universities, and many global foundations that are focused on healthcare have rapidly turned to testing, treating, and tracking COVID-19, often engaging in brand new novel types of collaborations to share data, to share resources, to share money, uh, and advancements in order to address the many global issues associated with the pandemic. That's great, Matt. What, what are some of the changes you're seeing with regard to technology platforms? So never before have we seen the ability of companies large and small, uh, and in particular large, to adapt. Companies are using their existing platforms and they're adapting them at an incredibly rapid pace to address three critical areas, which is testing, tracking, and treatment issues associated with COVID-19. You know, for example, one company uh, has completely adapted a cloud-based EMR system for testing, screening, and tracking COVID systems in patients across a national network of ambulatory and hospital customers, a critical development in the tracking of COVID-19 patients 
and potential patients. This is a company that wasn't involved in the tracking and tracing of symptoms for anything prior to COVID-19. Another company that we have a lot of experience with that had been focused on medical issues completely unrelated to COVID-19 has adapted their existing platform to triage and video consult on COVID-19 cases. This platform, again, it simply wasn't built to address anything to do with COVID-19, now provides personalized guidance and the option to connect for a telemedicine appointment if you have symptoms associated with the virus. So it just seems like so many companies, whether or not directly or peripherally involved in COVID-19, are taking a real all-hands-on-deck approach to contributing to testing, tracking, and tracing uh, the virus. It's really a silver lining of the virus and a really incredible result. What legal issues do these companies need to think about when creating these new service offerings? So for cloud technologies, we focus on this quite a bit because so many cloud-based technologies are being adopted to address issues associated with the virus. And always start when we're working with cloud-based technologies, we always or at least commonly start with assessing the criticality of the service and the sensitivity of the data that will be used, stored, or processed in the service. So things like availability guarantees are critical. If the application, the cloud-based application, that is being used in a critical process, like as part of an EMR system, a hospital information system, is being used to track the symptoms associated with COVID-19 in patients. If that's not available to caregivers, if that's not available to hospital personnel, if it's not available to the government, then it's arguably useless. And so we talk quite a bit and we discuss quite a bit uh, the availability guarantees that are associated with cloud-based applications. And then on the flip side, we always have to assess what the criticality of the data or the sensitivity of the data that's used or stored or processed through the services. I know Kristen is going to talk quite a bit about this, uh, but we, in contractual terms, really have to evaluate how sensitive that data is, whether it's federally protected, whether it's protected by international laws, and then address the corresponding provisions that really have to be in these types of contracts that are, that are associated with these types of deals. You know, one thing, you know, when it comes to privacy and data security, the availability of the platform, what happens if we can't get access to that data? What happens if we can't get access to that service? When we think about cloud-based applications and all the cloud-based applications that are coming out of COVID-19, those are the types of issues that we commonly focus on. Are you seeing a lot of companies that are setting up collaborations to work together to fight COVID? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Mike. And, and the pace of collaborations, uh, it's astounding. From joint development agreements to research collaborations to data sharing collaborations, there really seem to be few, uh, if any, limits with respect to companies and universities and foundations coming together in a, to positively impact outcomes when it comes to those three primary areas, testing, treating, and tracking of COVID-19. One client that we've worked with since its inception is a nonprofit grassroots organization called Survivor Corps. Survivor Corps has brought together approximately 90,000 COVID-19 survivors and their supporters and is embarking on a wide variety of really truly exciting and novel partnerships in order to impact advancements in vaccine and treatment development. Particularly, Survivor Corps is a key advocate in getting COVID-19 survivors to donate plasma. And you may have heard recently in the news how important the medical community believes that plasma can be to the development of therapeutics and ultimately a vaccine when it comes to COVID-19. 
we have to be cognizant of the fact that there are so many issues to address when it comes to collaborations, particularly at the pace we're moving with respect to collaborations, understanding what the collaboration is, the purpose of the collaboration before you start, clearly defining each party's roles and responsibilities. The objectives are critically important always. They're even more important when you're throwing together a collaboration at the pace we're seeing them put together today. You know, unfortunately, we also, particularly now, need to address what happens if the collaboration, if it ultimately doesn't achieve its strategic objectives. What happens to the contributions of all of the parties? What happens to the developments that were uh, developed as part of the collaboration when it existed? What happens to the data that was brought by all of the different parties to the collaboration, you know, and so on and so forth, in order to make sure that all of the parties to the collaboration understand what the collaboration is meant to achieve, understand how those achievements are going to be accomplished, and then understand to the extent that the collaboration ultimately doesn't work, how do we part ways in a way that won't really undermine each of our respective businesses? That's great, Matt. Can you say just a few words about supply agreements, especially for testing equipment? Yeah, sure. And Bethany talked about the infusion of new diagnostic tests, tests into the marketplace. And those tests have components that all have to be manufactured and supplied. Uh, and demand is huge. Supply chain disruption has been a, a big problem, and supply agreements need to address a variety of different contingencies. When we think about the volume of materials required to manufacture, the volume of tests that are required to address COVID, you can begin to see and understand why supply may be an issue. We're anticipating this already and have been for months with respect to a vaccine as well and all of the supply issues that are going to come with trying to, 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 to supply a vaccine to hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world. Also understand that manufacturers are impacted by COVID-19 as well, and they aren't capable of operating at full capacity. So as a result, agreements in this area need to address the potential impacts to the supply chain, clear definitions of what is to be supplied, when it's to be supplied, and so on and so forth. Uh, these issues are always important, but we've never really been more laser focused on them in light of the pandemic and the impacts that the pandemic has had on the global supply chain. All right. Thank you, Matt. Um, now I'd like to turn to Kristen Matthews. Kristen, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure thing. I'm a partner in the Privacy and Data Security Practice Group at Morrison & Foster, and I've been specializing in privacy and data security issues for a couple of decades. but over the last few months, I have been doing something that's unique even for me, and that is that I've been helping companies navigate the numerous privacy issues associated with screening employees as they return to the workplace. And among the ways that employers are screening employees is by using the COVID-19 diagnostic test. So a discussion of the issues around privacy and data security here could be its own podcast, but we're going to focus on employer concerns today, right? Exactly. When you're talking about medical issues, there are a number of privacy concerns that employers need to be aware of. They need to balance two things. One, their responsibility to maintain a safe environment for their workers, and also their employees' right to medical privacy. So can employers require an employee to take a COVID-19 test when they come back to work? They can, 
And that's only because in April of this year, the EEOC released guidance saying so. And before that, employers didn't have an, an authoritative answer to that question. But since April, yes, the EEOC has said that they can require employees to take the COVID test. And in fact, many employers are doing so. So does that guidance apply, Kristen, to both the viral test and to the antibody test? It does not. It only applies to the viral test. And this is because the active COVID-19 infection poses a direct threat to other employees and customers. And that fact came from the fact that the COVID-19 virus was designated as a pandemic earlier this year. It was only because of that designation that the EOC was able to make this decision that the COVID-19 infection poses this direct threat that enabled them to say that employers are allowed to require employees to take the test. Do employers have access to those test results? Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. It depends on how they arrange for the test to be taken. If they do have access to the results, though, there are laws out there that say that, first of all, the employer must keep the results confidential, but also that the results need to be kept in a separate medical file, not in the employee's regular personnel file. And in fact, in order to mitigate some of the legal exposure that is associated with an employer even having this information, a lot of employers are arranging not to get it, not to receive the result, or not to keep it for very long. And in fact, the results of the test are not the only information that the employer ends up getting because employers, in some cases, electively, and in other cases, must, by law, engage in what's called contact tracing, which means questioning an employee who has contracted the virus about who they have interacted with within the workplace. And so that information is also in the record that they need to treat in accordance with privacy laws. In addition to the EEOC guidelines, are there state laws in play here too? Yes, there are. Um, Both the California Consumer Privacy Act, as well as other state laws, generally require that employee employers have employee-facing privacy policies. Now, those laws weren't specific for COVID-19. However, since they exist, if a business does have one of these employee-facing privacy policies, it's natural that they would have to revise that policy to address the fact that they are collecting information about their employees in the context of COVID tracing and contact tracing. Do you have any idea how many employers are actually regularly testing their employees? It depends on what kind of business they are in. For example, do they have essential workers? Are they businesses that involve a lot of person-to-person contact? Some are, and in fact, some are required to, by local guidance, provide the COVID test, but most probably aren't. Instead, what they are doing is using temperature checks as well as questionnaires about symptoms, travels, and contact with others in order to screen the employees as they return to the workplace. Thanks very much, Kristen. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, 
please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.